As the Russian invasion began, a team of Ukrainian journalists was trapped in the besieged city of Mariupol. The searing and harrowing film, 20 Days in Mariupol, documents their struggle to continue working to record the war's atrocities under the brutal assault of Russia's army. Welcome to Silicon Curtain Podcast. Please do like, share, and definitely comment so we can help more and more people discover this uh, fantastic guest that we feature. It's never been more important for that to happen as it is now, as we come up to the second anniversary of Russia's invasion. And that's one of the things we're going to be discussing today with uh, Tityan Denford. She is a Ukrainian-American fiction author, translator for Frontline PBS, freelance writer, as well as a YouTube channel host with 20 plus years history of working in the writing and editing world. Her first novel, self-published in 2020 as Motherland, has been republished in July 2022 with a team at Hatchet. And of course, we will put links to that. The Child of Ukraine, it's called. We'll put links to that in the description of the video. Um, and I'm delighted to welcome you back to the channel for the second time, Titiana. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here as usual. And you have involvement, of course, with the 20 days in Mariupol. Um, we'll talk about the impact it's making in a minute. But for those who aren't familiar with it, let's just go through your role in that film and really the sort of genesis of it, uh, how it came about, uh, how it came to be made. Because I think this, if people haven't seen it, this is making a huge impact. Yeah, and I'm, I'm we're the team all of us who worked on it are really proud of it. I have been working with Frontline since uh, the Revolution of Dignity in 2014. And they hired me to be a translator of the Ukrainian language. And that movie, the documentary that came out is called The Battle for Ukraine. And it basically goes behind the scenes as to what was happening on the Maidan. Um, and it was, you know, a at the time, people didn't really understand what Ukraine was standing up for, um, where Ukraine really was on the map, even. They didn't understand Ukrainians. Um, and it kind of delves into kind of a little bit of the corruption of the government at the time and why students in particular were the ones that were out on the Maidan saying enough is enough. Um, so, and since then, they've called me up um, whenever they needed me as, as a translator. Um, so when the war began uh, in 2022, uh, the producers emailed me and said, okay, we need you um, because we're doing a documentary uh, in particular about Mariupol. Um, and they needed me on like on call basically. So most of 2022, I had, <laughs> I spent countless hours, um, sometimes in the middle of the night, editing um, some like footage and translating the Ukrainian language. Um, and it was very, very harrowing work. I mean, I'm not comparing it to what Mr. Slav and Yevgeny had to smuggle out of Mariupol at the time, but it, it was the honor of my life to have worked on that film. Um, and to work with a very dedicated uh, team of translators and producers. So, yeah, it was, you know, I saw the premiere in New York and it was, it's funny when you see the, when I saw the raw footage that was being sent to me, um, 
I thought, I mean, that left kind of, there are things that I saw that I will, I never thought I'd ever see in my entire life. And I probably will never see again. It left kind of emotional scars. Um, and then when I saw it, at the, the, at, saw the premiere in New York and Mrs. Love and I were having a chat and I could, it was just reliving that again, the way it was put together. And I just saw the pain in his face and he gave me a hug and uh, it's kind of, we all bonded through that. I would like to say it sounds so trite. I completely get what that sounds like, but you know, you are connected when you go through trauma with somebody and I will forever be connected to Mrs. Love and Michelle, the producer. And yeah, it was quite horrifying. Um, but because you saw the raw footage. So when it's yeah. edited up, I mean, it's it's traumatic enough. It's taken me five sittings to, to watch yeah. 20 Days in Mariupol because I, I just... It's too much to watch, you know, end, end to end, if, I, if, if I'm honest. And I think other, a lot of other people have, have said the same, even those who've been on the front line um, and, and I've seen it, have said they just find it such an emotional impact. But you're yeah. seeing the raw footage. I mean, in some ways that must be even harder because it, it just, you get the full reality uh, of it. Yeah, I mean, Here's the here's the weird bit. And I think maybe I'm a bit of a masochist like this. Uh, I because I have family still currently living through this war. I felt kind of helpless as to what I could do. Donations, fine. Checking in on them, fine. Making sure like I could do what I could do to help. But when this was dropped on my desk and I could work with frontline again i just felt like that was my effort that was what i could do and i think somebody said that i was probably experiencing secondhand ptsd and again i don't want to inflate the this kind of trauma because compared to people living through this war i mean i'm you know it's i feel lucky in so many ways um but it really affected me mentally uh i remember seeing certain footage and people who have seen the movie, there are certain scenes that I had to translate that were of children dying on a gurney and the parents standing there helpless. Um, and I think I had to just numb myself to that. And you come, you compartmentalize, you realize it's just a job. It's just a job. I'm doing my job. I'm doing the best I can to help. And I think it all hit me towards the end of the year after I'd submitted all my edits and the footage and kind of, we were taking a break and I broke down. I think I had a really tough period where I just, I was quite manic in a daze, you know, but now people are kind of witnessing the truth and all of that was weirdly worth it, I guess. It's a very strange it, thing to say. And it's a very strange job to have to do, but I am hugely honored and grateful that I that they trusted me to do that. And it is incredibly important, isn't it? Because one of the lines jumped out at me uh, in, the, in the film, and that is, only a few days into the siege, 
of Mariupol. And the um, journalist is saying, you know, we decided to stay with the ambulance crew um, and now all the foreign press are gone. So you really get this sense of of almost abandonment. Um, so people who are prepared to stay and do that job, it's, it's absolutely vital because without recording it, um, this almost benefits the amnesiac quality of Russian propaganda. If no one's yeah. there to see it, it didn't happen. Didn't happen. And here's here's the most amazing, and I still get goosebumps talking about this. When I received footage that included the, oh my gosh, what was his name? The police officer who helped the team and said, and they were in the hospital and he said, right, I'm going to get my guys to help you get the footage out. I had to translate what he was saying in Ukrainian to the camera. He made, he was making a statement and it, in, in Ukrainian, it's Zvorushlo. It's like, it, 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 it made me feel undone to watch this man say, I am going to protect the journalists and the footage as opposed to protecting the people stuck in the hospital. And to have to make that horrific decision in that moment, you know, he basically protected the truth. Now, some people might find that really problematic because you're trying, you, you have, you have a job to protect these people who are stuck in the hospital, but they might die anyway. Like what an awful decision to have to make. But the fact that he managed to finagle a way to help the journalists get the footage out of Mariupol was just extraordinary to me. And it's a complex he moral calculation. So committed. Isn't it? You know, yeah, we might save not... many more lives by getting the footage out than we can here physically, you know, one on one. Yeah. But imagine, imagine having to be in that moment and i think in the past on on social media i have discussed the gray areas of war it's very very difficult for people to comprehend that it's not black and white you are forced to have to make very very difficult decisions i cannot imagine being in a situation where in a split second i had to figure out and do some mental gymnastics on what to do in the next 2 minutes or you know i can't imagine what my grandparents and great grandparents had to go through, what decisions they had to make. Now it's easy for us to sit back and go, well, this is what I would have done. Would you have though? <laughs> you know, yeah. it's, it's tricky. And I think that police officer, and I'm so sorry that I, his name is out of my head now and I can't, but to make that decision was so brave and so right in the end, because otherwise we, you and I would not be talking about this right now. And that's another thing that comes out of the, out of the film as well. The very, very early on, the journalist sort of gives advice to a civilian to hide in the basement because you'd be safer there. And then comes out with the phrase, which is very humane, very understandable in those early days. They, they won't go out of their way to kill civilians. You know, they're not going to be bombarding civilian areas. Within hours, that's proved wrong. And he fortunately meets up with that person, finds they've survived. 
But again, I guess people who are on the front line in a variety of roles, they have to face up every day to the idea that they may be making mistakes. And those mistakes may have life and death consequences for colleagues or other people, but they have to move on from that. They have to keep yeah. going, learn from mistakes, because that might cumulatively save more people in the end and not not tear themselves apart yeah. from, from mistakes they've made. It's horrific. You know, and I think people are understanding. I think people who have, and the movie is very triggering, and I completely understand why some people can't bring themselves to watch it. Um, but the people who have watched it, it's a conversation then that starts about how so many people on the front lines, you know, volunteers, civilians, they are carrying this enormous weight of responsibility on how to navigate this on a daily basis. And the defenders who are lucky enough to come home to their families, I cannot imagine the trauma that they, these, these invisible scars that they will carry with them for the rest of their life, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think having this, you know, thank God we have this footage because it's allowing people to sit in that very uncomfortable place and think about how on so many levels this situation was and is and will continue to be devastating, you know? But this is a set of stats that I've, I've shared on the channel sort of earlier today because I found them absolutely uh, extraordinary. Um, and that is that 44% the of all Ukrainians who are polled in, in this particular data set here have immediate family members who are serving. 33% uh, have family members who are in the territorial uh, forces. 48% um, report that a close friend or relative has been killed. Um, and 31% know somebody who's under occupation. So these facts and figures are, are, are extraordinary. Oh, and 56% report that their neighborhood has been hit or suffered in some way by shelling uh, shrapnel or whatever. So again, there's extraordinary figures. That means that the trauma that you're talking about is not something isolated to the front line. It's not something isolated to those who specifically um, have experienced, you know, directly a Shahid or something. Everybody has got some level, if not multiple levels of trauma, which at the moment, I guess, many people are just, as you say, they have a job to do and, and, and they have to keep going. But that... That's an extraordinary legacy of of of, of pain and, and mental trauma that's going to have to be dealt with. I mean, and that's what war does, doesn't it? But I think because Ukrainians have lived with these stories, so many similar stories in their families, I'm most Ukrainians have so many stories like this, you know, that they've grown up with. And I think you know, it leaves ripples, it leaves echoes, and future generations of children will be scarred by this in some way. You know, there have been babies born in bomb shelters or while shelling is happening. We saw it on in the documentary. Um, there are children being taught in bomb shelters and they're, you know, being conditioned to hear air raid sirens and adjust their lives to include that, which is incomprehensible to me, you know. And I think what a lot of people don't also realize because, you know, the war really hit the headlines in February of 2022. 
but I don't think people realize the scale of the fighting and the changes, the internal changes in Ukrainian society that were needed to deal with uh, the assault since 2014. But there are people on the front lines now, many tens of thousands of them, who are school children, young school children, when this kicked off. So this is a kind mm-hmm. of, you know, this isn't just something that sort of happened in the last two years. This is so-called described, you know, eternal eternal warfare of the forever yeah. war. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's a kind of, and I'm learning to hate this word resilience because Ukrainians shouldn't have to be resilient and patient and forgiving and hopeful all the time because it it just adds layers and layers and layers on top of what they already have to carry. But I think it does unfortunately create a layer of thick skin almost for Ukrainians to have to somehow live a life where they have to act normal while they also brace themselves part of part of their insides part of their emotions have to kind of prepare themselves for something you know for a change in their day to check in and make sure that you know somebody in their family hasn't died um to make sure that they are protecting their children and making them live as normal a life as possible all of that is just creating scar tissue almost that they have to carry with them and that's really sad but that's the reality, you know, and I think more people, the more people realize that, the more maybe patient they would be with Ukrainians to kind of stop and listen and hold space instead of like a lot of people do on social media nowadays, they they don't listen, they wait to speak and then they shout everybody down because they think that shouting louder means that they're right. So I think the more people realize the layers of trauma, the layers of responsibility, the layers that Ukrainians have to go through in order to live their lives now, more now than ever, um, the more I think maybe hopefully people will stop. And instead of forming an immediate opinion and a knee-jerk reaction, they can just wait and go, okay, right. I just, I need to learn from this a little bit. And I think when we spoke last time and you talk about Ukrainians being sort of, uh, I think one of the words you used was sort of stubborn and forceful and so on. I'd almost counter that to say that actually, given the circumstances and given what Ukrainians know, what they've experienced and their deep understanding, I would say, of the Russian mindset, um, mm. there is actually a little too much humility rather than, <laughs> than the opposite. And and that seems to me, as I, I you know, after being in Ukraine uh, in in August, and obviously speaking to many, many people, it does strike me that humility is a, a key component of the Ukrainian identity. And this is this is one of the reasons why um, it has been subsumed by 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 uh, by by Russia, um, because Russian orthodoxy talks about humility being um, a key component of your psychological makeup. But as I recall interactions with many Russians and living there, humility is not a feature of oh, no. the culture. It's seen as a weakness. Yes. The, which is hilarious. And I think probably a year ago when you interviewed me, I was probably really angry. So I was like, no, we're all feisty. We're all just, we're scrappy. We'll figure it out. Whereas I think, you know, we all grow and learn and change over time. 
You know, people in the diaspora are living through this very differently than people in Ukraine. And I think initial reactions can be a lot of anger and frustration, and we're willing to do whatever it takes in order to amplify whoever needs to be amplified. And I think time allows for us to see a lot of different facets of our culture and our people and our history. And you're right about the humility. I think we we get offended now when people see that as some kind of weakness or, you know, like we're pushovers. I think we see a lot of goodness, even through our anger, there's still so much in our, in Ukraine that is good and in the Ukrainian, in the people and the, you know, how we kind of present ourselves. And I think that's why sometimes when people get on, get on social media and start talking about certain problematic areas of the government in Ukraine, or there are a lot of Ukrainians who are saying, yeah, every country has its problems, but right now, especially during war, during genocide, the most important thing we can focus on is not only how to help, but how to see hope, how to see that Ukrainians are still working, still living their lives, still inventing things and creating, you know, um, robotic parts for amputees. And they are innovative and they are humble and they are passionate people, you know. And I think that's way more important right now because that's what gives traction to the amplification that's what allows people to have the energy of positivity going come on let's just keep helping keep doing this you know we need that otherwise the the typical human kind of war fatigue is really going to set in especially this year when there is so there are so many things shifting we're like no 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 let's keep going we have to keep that sentiment you know we'll turn back to the documentary in a minute but one question that also comes out of that, and I think this is a really key component of what's been going on, of course, uh, Zelensky is an incredible communicator, both internally and externally. Um, and certainly he seemed to be winning the the oratory in year one of the, of the war. There has yeah. subsequently been criticism, again, both internally and externally. Um, yeah. But it's interesting to see what, what that is. There's a certain amount of... I uh, dare I say, inevitably in, in wartime, you know, there are disagreements which can, you know, uh, become a little more public. But of course, Russia's yeah. amplifying those. So that that's sort of going on within Ukraine. Externally, there's a very different dynamic. And this is one which I think is quite interesting because another characteristic that strikes me of Ukrainians is, is, is really no tolerance for sort of BS or doing things for a symbolic value or ticking boxes or just because it's diplomatic and so on and you know yeah you're polite but you're not going to go through some kind of rigmarole just for the sake of it to make someone feel better and i think it's a certain intolerance with the uh and rightfully so a sense of urgency and tolerance for the kind of bs of international diplomacy yeah. and when support falls short of what is required for victory but is enough to kind of tick a box and virtue signal for Western governments. Uh, the media are like, isn't this great? And, you know, Zelensky and others are, they're telling the truth. This is not enough. Do better. 
uh, and they're labeled as emotional and pushy and greedy and whatever. You know, in general, in life, but especially during a war, who has time for BS? Honestly, it's like we have more important stuff to do. Come on. You know, and I think that's generally if I get together and have dinner with Ukrainians, we're not going to kind of cuddle and, and you know, say, oh, poor me. And, you know, how are you feeling? Is everything OK? You know, we're the kind of people that are like, right, so this is happening. What else is going on in your life? You know, it's one of those things where you have to just get on with it. And I think a lot of us get frustrated with the pandering that happens in the media, especially the articles that are coming out now in a lot of huge kind of platformed um, newspapers, um, because everybody likes to play this little, let's tiptoe around it, and everybody wants to be diplomatic, and they play the kind of double talk game. And we do not have time for that. We need the truth. We need something to be very black and white. If you're not going to help, get out of the way. We need to make sure that we have the international community on the same page. And, and I think that's what comes across, you know, I think people misperceive, is that a, even a word? I don't even know, but they do not. <laughs> I think it's inaccurate, especially on social media. It's very easy to get a hot take, you know, on something. So people get very grand opinions and say, well, you're acting a little bit entitled and greedy when actually we are just trying to communicate the truth. And it's very easy to misread something on a social media platform. It's very easy to be triggered or, oh, you're using that word. You can't use that word. Well, how else do you want us to talk about what we need and how you can help? You know, and I think what's brilliant about Zelensky now, he is not above being criticized, you know, and that's okay too. And it's important actually to have somebody who's leading any country, you know, people elect these people ideally, except what happens in Russia, but um, people elect somebody to lead their country. So they should be held accountable for how they run it and what people they put into place and what their policies are. That's fine, you know, and that should be the case. But when it comes to how Zelensky engages an audience, he treads a very good middle ground of being honest without being arrogant. He shows a little bit of humility and sometimes humor, but also has presence, you know? And I think that is so terribly important in a world where people are craving humanity and leaders who feel human. And I think when people feel disconnected from a leader or a politician, they're really just gonna go off to an extreme, you know, in what they believe and what they are fed. And this is why sometimes people get sucked into propaganda is because propaganda sees a hole or a weakness and they go, oh, well, you don't believe in that? Let me tell you the truth, you know? And I think, I am, even if I may not agree with certain things about Zelensky and maybe some of his policies, I think the way he's navigating is phenomenal because he's a real human being. Isn't that what we all want? Somebody who just talks to us like he gets it. 
You know, he is a husband, a father, somebody who is not a career politician and who's kind of approaching this in a way that's like, guys, I'm doing my best. Here's what I think we should do. And he's consistent in his message. There's no dusty double talk politician here. So I, you know, I, it's a, it, it's must be an extremely difficult job, obviously, but I think personally, I think it's very effective. And of course, surrounded by career politicians who, as we've seen, you know, um, have a big eye on their own sort of domestic success, et cetera. Um, it, it's a tough one to sort of cut through. The other challenging aspect before we get on to um, the documentary again is, um, and we're going to talk about the sort of cultural loss uh, in the yeah. year uh, since, since, since we last spoke. But the other one, of course, is, and, and what is, seems to be happening, is we're starting to uncover the networks of Russian influence. And yeah. as the immediacy of the uh, war, which the documentary very effectively shows, as that immediacy fades, if the media are going to carry on covering Ukraine, they constantly need to find new angles, new stories, yeah. new ways of doing it. That, to my mind, really enhances the... Um, or amplifies the chances of distorting the truth if you're constantly not looking at reality and how can we reflect that better but rather here's an audience how can we package some information up to get their attention almost irrespective of the reality and i i see more and more of that happening including the bbc you know it's it's a product they have to create and sell and pitch yeah. and um what we're also seeing though is that this is incredibly fertile territory for the implanted Russian assets and agents. And even this week, we're seeing details coming out about people with deep links to Valdai and so on, who are getting these op-eds, who are writing these big articles, who are even influencing, it seems, policymaking within the White House. Yeah. And I, I do think, I remember starting the beginning of the year thinking, because of the US election, because of the UK election, because of how many global elections are happening, there's going to be a shift. And it feels like media very quickly finds points of not weaknesses, but maybe even unrest or instability. And they just start creating stories to gently guide whatever audience they can for whatever, um, message they want to get across and I was saying so many times in the beginning we all have to brace ourselves you know Ukraine is fighting and like a, a constant onslaught and they are doing it in this consistent and strong and dare I say it like kind of humble way even and I think the danger is, is that the the quicker the media feeds these little stories and the quicker people turn, the danger is that people are going to start turning away. And I keep saying, like, be careful. There are people who on social media are amplifying things that if they read the article, it's inconsistent or the headline is bad, but people very easily jump on a bandwagon just because something is trending. And I think it's so dangerous. There is a level of impatience that's happening right now because people want to get ahead of the news. So they want to be the first one to amplify something or again, do a hot take about whatever. When 
it's it's dangerous. It's dangerous because the more that happens, the more people will start kind of being distracted by all these different, very problematic ideas and headlines. And we need to kind of stay focused in our lane on the truth and how to help. Yeah. And of course, the hot take is what sticks in someone's minds. The follow-up that may be more nuanced, unfortunately, rarely is, but the, the follow-up that may be more nuanced, detailed, factual, and present a different argument, um, yeah. that's... You know, social media's moved on. People have moved on. That's not the first impression that, that sinks in. So it's almost as if the dice are loaded towards propaganda. And since we last spoke, Kahovka Dam is a classic yeah. story. Under coverage uh, in the news, but what coverage yeah. there was is very much slanted to these hot takes, which yeah. really sort of fail to uh, deal with with evidence that rather than, you know, was it Russia, wasn't it Russia... Within days, more and more evidence is piling up that it was. Now we're at a certain distance of that event. Yeah, the I would say strategic evidence makes it, you know, a certainty that it wasn't just like an accident or whatever. It was very carefully planned with a strong strategic intent. But of course, the media's gone. They're on. They're on to something else. No, and the first take on that, my family was directly affected by that. And the first take on that was, well, they did it to themselves. Oh, sorry, what? <laughs> but but that's the thing. It leaves a dent. It leaves an impression. And then you move on. And that's what you remember. And especially in a year like this year, it's going to happen more and more. And I think it's going to be much harder work for us to just wait and go, wait, hang on. No, there are holes in this. Don't, you know, don't listen to that. Move this aside. It's going to be kind of wading through stuff. And I worry that people are you know, we all have busy lives. And I think people are impatiently just sharing stuff, thinking it'll help, but that's where it gets lost. And that's where, where propaganda kind of digs its teeth further in. And, and we can't let ourselves do that. It's better to just actually not say a thing instead of just resharing something. And this is where we come to 20 days in, in Mariupol, because we're two years in and, and, and those who are following this have seen untold uh, horrors, actually day by day by day, um, if you're really sort of paying attention. But you can become, I won't say, you know, every, every one of those is a crime. Every one of those is terrible and horrific and you do feel something, but you don't feel that same kind of depth, that same kind of absolute horror that you feel the first time you, you see that, the first footage. Yeah. And this is why I think this 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 uh, documentary film is so important because it captures that sheer horror and impact and energy, the tears and trauma. You know, I, the surgeons all standing around, for instance, the the small child who's um, who's passing in front of their eyes, uh, horrifically, uh, you know, wounded with again the parent there, and of course all the doctors and surgeons are are, are crying. I'm guessing you, you you can't function in that role if you're going to do that every day and be emotionally affected. So people must have to just sort of deal with it. Yeah. But that film captures that immediate intensity. How important is it that it's coming out now and we're, we're close to the second anniversary that people yeah. really sort of reconnect with the sheer horror of what's going on? I think human nature will, human nature does have fatigue more quickly than ever before when they are faced with 
reading things on the internet or seeing videos on social media. I think over time, it's very easy to say, well, I can't, I'm going to turn away from this because I can't handle it. I get it. It's self-preservation also. You know, you want to reserve parts of yourself that aren't traumatized so you can kind of live a normal life. Here's where I think film in particular, especially now, is hugely important because that is always going to be a way for people to revisit almost, if they can, um, the truth about certain bits of history that we would rather turn away from. Um, and I more, more so than social media can implode tomorrow. The videos on there can disappear, but film lives in perpetuity. And something like this will have an effect across generations, as long as people don't see it as a, oh, one of those kind of films about Ukraine. It's like the film, Mr. Jones. Now, granted that was based on a part of history, Holdemar, and how it was discovered by a Welsh journalist, but it was, dare I say, sensationalized a little bit because, you know, it was a film that was a little bit Hollywood. And it's easy to kind of move those aside and kind of go, okay, I'm, I'm moving on. That was interesting, but I'm just going to watch something else. I think 20 Days is filmed in such a unique way I can't even explain. I think it's the first documentary, and I know I sound biased, obviously I'm Ukrainian, but also I think it's the first documentary that I've ever seen that is narrated and filmed almost like an art piece, if that makes sense. It is beautiful, despite how heartbreaking and devastating and traumatic it is to watch. It is bringing somebody in to the very middle and kind of forcing them to make the same decisions that these people are making in those moments. I don't know how they did that, but I think the human, you know, Mrs. narration up above it made it feel way more impactful than I was expecting. Yes. Very I human as well, isn't it? It's right? like it. Yeah. And I think the way it was put together, the way the film was cut and, and the narration and the filming and everything, it was like a combination of a, a, a like a, a violent kind of, you know, horror film, but also, like I said, an art piece and a documentary and trying to teach people about the humans that had gone through this. It has so many layers, and I think that's why right now, fittingly, in during the award circuit, people are just blown away by how it reads and how it affects people. You know, um, I just think I think it's beautiful and horrifying all at once. And that might point to perhaps one of the issues with journalism. This doesn't denigrate the work of international journalists because a lot of fantastic work gets done. But there's always this quality of otherness, isn't there? And the journalist comes in, they're not part of that community. Yeah. They can leave usually at any point. Uh, not always, but, you know, because it's high risk. But they usually, they can leave and then they go and they do the same somewhere else. 
there's always this sort of othering of the people that they are covering yeah. and there's this sense of distance but also i think you know probably as well because you've got the watershed and so you have to package the news up in a way that mm. sanitizes it it puts a, a veil a barrier a distance between the audience and the events that's happening this doesn't happen in this film because yeah. you know the journalist is standing around going oh my god this is terrible but you can see and feel you know at certain points they'll simply put the camera down but it carries on filming and those little moments tell you so much about the mental state of the film crew yeah. without any kind I, of words i love i love that you just said that because <laughs> it's so easy like you said and it's a tough job for a, but for a journalist to kind of point their camera at something and saying listen i'm reporting this to you lucky you you don't have to go through this, but here's what's happening, you know? And I think not just, I mean, Mariupol does, like I said, it it's the opposite of that. It, it drags you in and forces you to listen to the pain in the narrator's voice. It forces you to watch and feel helpless that you're not doing something and maybe it pushes people after the film to say I want to do something it 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 brings like an active participant in you it brings it out and says okay what can I do how can I learn from this but also I think part of why you know uh, there's so much happening in the world right now and I'm not going to get into other wars but that's why the voices that are part of the community that, that they are reporting from in a war, when they release their videos on social media, it's way more impactful than sending a team of reporters pointing a camera and saying, we're bringing you the news. When somebody's actually there, or God forbid, their family and friends are affected by this, but they are press and they are, they are presenting you with these horrors while also personally affected, I'm sorry, you have to have a heart of stone not to want to do something. And I think that's the future, really, as, as we see it. Like anytime there is a disaster, a war, some kind of humanitarian crisis, that's how we're going to get people involved is to say, I'm a human being just like you. My family is affected. This is the pain that I feel while I'm presenting this to you, you know? It's, I think that is a, I hate to use this term because it sounds really trite, but um, breaking the fourth wall almost is just bringing people in. And mm -hmm. I think if we don't learn how to connect with human beings on this planet, then we have nothing left. I mean, then everything feels surface level. We have to be affected by things in order to affect change globally. That's it. And uh, again, not to be political, but I've, I've seen some footage coming out of Gaza again, very, you know, expertly trained, impartial uh, documentary makers, filmmakers who are filming their own communities coming under attack. Um, and there's some of that sort of quality of immediacy. Obviously, as a problem, because there's also a lot of propaganda mixed in with there. So you have to be quite partial in, you know, choosing an individual you trust. And I think there's a very interesting point you make here. It's no longer an outlet or a team or a particular news format. It's almost yeah. like you have to go down to the level of an individual journalist and like, I trust their voice and their voice is consistently good or 
I know their strengths and weaknesses. And that's quite an interesting development. Yeah. Um, also, this film is is shot over a, a number of weeks. Um, mm -hmm. And I think one thing that made a big impact on me is just the, the sheer visceral nature of the film, but realizing this is a small slice of experience in mm -hmm. one city when many, many, many dozens, if not hundreds of citizen villages are undergoing sort of, you know, similar trauma. To me, the, the, the sheer um, immediacy of that does create this kind of echo effect that you think, well, my goodness, you know, that, that what has gone on if you multiply this over time and space? I think yeah. that, that's part of the impact of it. Yeah, and I think people are realizing that now. And there's more footage that I've translated that Mrs. Slav is probably going to come out with in the future. And I plan on working with him in Frontline on kind of future projects, but there are so many layers and tentacles of how Ukraine has been devastated by this war. And there were interviews um, that I translated with people that survived. Um, There's a whole incident at Yablonska Street um, where people were marched into a torture chamber um, and witnessed things that you know, um, people will be horrified with. Um, and I think if we appreciate and witness all of these events that are connected rather than compartmentalizing them and saying, oh, okay, well, that was the news for today. Okay, let's move on. You know, it's kind of building a case, hopefully, as to why the international community should try and do their best at amplifying and helping Ukraine and Ukrainians, because otherwise the, we have nothing left. I mean, Ukraine and Ukrainians over generations have historically been kind of passed over or, you know, turned away from, they've been mocked in media as you know people who are lowly like cleaners or thieves or and i think the more people use this as tragic as it is as information where they can better inform themselves as to who ukrainians are what the country has done over the years to contribute to the modern world you know we're not some back road dumb farmers that I've heard myself I've been called that you know growing up I think if people realize that and use this as education rather than war porn I think that's th that's the way we can kind of all lean in you know and I'm not and, and it's not about asking people to constantly you know be doom scrolling or constantly be traumatized but Use the time that you have when Ukraine is constantly in the news. Why don't you use some time to kind of research history, culture, which is why Ukrainian Spaces does this amazing job of like talking about activists and people who are decolonized or are in the process of trying to kind of get out of that brainwashing system because of Soviet occupation so long ago. Um, the culture, the 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 you know, industry, I think use that and just try and understand 
who these people are, you know, instead of using us as some kind of trending news bulletin and then turning away, you know, it's more important than that. And I think that that's that's kind of emerging. Certainly people who watch this channel consistently will see that there's certain arguments emerging and certain questions I put to guests that sort of try to angle things towards uh, taking action and also mm. towards the justifications of why Ukraine should be supported. And I think one of the compelling ones uh, is not support Ukraine because they're a democracy or because they're this or that or it's a crucial location or resources or whatever. For me, it's because Ukrainians have something unique that we need to learn from. It's it's almost like that kind of genetic diversity. If it's lost, it's lost, and we lose something within our own self-interest. And I know you you are getting tired of the word resilience, but it's the innovation around countering propaganda. It's yeah. preserving national identity, culture, evolving it, despite being under you know, an imperial boot for several centuries, yeah. despite, you know, the Soviet Union and the system it created was so successful at putting multiple cultures and identities as if into a vat of acid and nothing is left of them. Almost nothing yeah. is left. And here Ukraine emerges from that vat of acid and, you, you, you know, it's still legible, visible. It still kind of bounces back. That to me is the real miracle of it. Yeah. And I, you know what? I think as humanity, we have a responsibility to turn away from propaganda, not just because of Ukraine, but because it's better for the world as a whole, surely. You know, we don't want to be drip fed nonsense. You know, I think people are tired of being talked down to and dumbed down thinking, oh, and maybe some people just are happy idiots and they just want to have like a fun you know, news bulletin and then watch a Disney movie. That's okay too. But I'm saying just generally, it's not just about Ukraine. It's just about not enabling the false information just because people are in power and they are enabled to behave this way, you know? And I think it's just, it's, it's something that Ukrainians obviously are at the forefront in having this conversation about propaganda, but we cannot be the only ones doing the heavy lifting here, you know? And we have been given we were given assurances that we would be helped, that we would be protected, which is why we signed the Geneva Convention papers. And then now we're in a position where we're asking people, hang on, can we please hold you accountable for helping us, please? Because we're in a tricky situation. And now we're being seen as, oh, well, you know, you're taking money out of our budget. Now, <laughs> again, there's gray. It's not just black and white. And I, I really, really hope not just because the film is coming out, the documentary, but I really hope this year is a watershed moment for how people connect in the world. And I really hope that we all turn a blind eye to propaganda, uh, to, you know, power that is enabled too often. And I really hope we turn towards humanity because that's what connects us all. You know, America and other countries aren't that far away from Ukraine. And it's 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 very dangerous to think that people are cushioned from that because who knows, we keep enabling it. How is it gonna affect other countries? I think, and I think some, that's the, yeah. 
there's there's some some green shoots there which i think you know it's it's incumbent on anyone who is looking to 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 push action here and people will appreciate that i mean i've had conversations with people over the last two years which if it wasn't for the fact that we found commonality in supporting ukraine we wouldn't be having any conversations at all about anything in fact we might be in that kind of social media bubble where we're slinging mud at each other so i think there is something to build upon there you know brexit's been incredibly divisive um the uh, Trump period in power has been divisive. I'm not going to say, you know, right, wrong, etc. But it was divisive. People didn't agree with each other. But what you find is on Ukraine and on some broad issues of freedom, certain people who might have been divided into those two camps say, oh, actually, no, we we can talk about certain things here. We can unite on certain things. It's not by any means universal, but it has given a little bit of hope that there's at least some foundations left that we can build upon yeah um the last area we're going to talk about i think is let's angle it towards why ukraine needs to be enabled to win faster and more decisively but let's talk about the cultural loss because it's been an extraordinary two years of actual cultural losses from across every different spectra from writing to music to art um and there's no sign of that letting up just this week uh, a promising uh poet uh, who's only released one volume has, has has passed away on the front um let's let's just go through some of the loss but also you know the legacy uh of some of these people who will live on one who's very sort of close to home here in the uk because she visited and and many of the um you know literary uh sort of ukrainian leading literary people here were very close friends with her which is victoria amelina but there have been many incredible voices silenced by by russia um this is by necessity i think a, a very painful topic to touch upon but let's let's talk a bit about that i mean i think all death is terrible but i think um the death of a poet, writer, activist, like a creative who has used their words in a way to amplify the country they're proud of, that is an echo that is similar to so many Ukrainians who were artists, who were targeted specifically um, and erased. And I think that is an especially painful reminder when it happens now, you know, Victoria's death was just truly, I think, shocking. Um, and it it will leave a mark for a long time, you know, alongside um, the poet, bless him, who died um, quite recently as well um, on the front. And I think it just reminds us of a very, very painful history if you look up a lot of Ukrainian poets and authors and kind of people who believed in the beauty of their country and how they were targeted, pianists, painters, it is absolutely devastating to know that a country could single out so many beautiful souls and just any kind of beauty, just because they don't understand it and they're almost jealous of it, they have to get rid of it so nobody else can have it. And it's kind of sick 
really kind of wrapping your mind around that. And I think those losses are felt quite deeply because Ukrainians are kind of used to that, knowing those kind of histories. So the fact that it's happening now is just, it's just trauma and we are triggered by that. The thing that remains, however, is the fact that these people use their words to glorify Ukraine and to celebrate its beauty and its you know, persistence in how the country wants to live and the hope in the future. And those words will live on. So the hope that remains and the legacy that remains is not about destruction and a war narrative. It's about the fact that we now hold on to these words by Victoria and all these other poets and artists to say, this is what is left and this is what we're gonna hold on to, to, to bring in a brighter future, you know, and hoping that this will not keep happening. I do think um, the outcome might be different because I've become, uh, you know, in, in the conversations, become more aware of what's called the uh, executed renaissance of the 1920s. And of course, knowledge of that, knowledge of the writers and their outputs, it's taken, you know, several decades for those to percolate through Ukraine and there's still a job to be done there. Um, but but their legacy is starting to be known and appreciated outside of Ukraine. It was this blanket of amnesia which Russia yeah. was able to place over well, all of that culture. Will it be different and, and there's a, I think there's a, the, the difference now is because back then, Russia still had this influence of kind of erasure so everything that was ukrainian language basically russian you know this painting that was painted by ukrainian oh and it's a russian kind of painter so there was still a bit of an iron kind of curtain um around what ukraine wanted to be so everything was kind of kept quiet for a long time i honestly think it took I mean, it's been bubbling since the Revolution of Dignity in 2014, but I think 2022 really changed the shape of how people referenced Ukraine and how younger generations are now saying, by the way, we're going to call our representatives, we're going to call you know, the heads of museums, we are going to adjust how you refer to all of these artists, and we're going to rename them as Ukrainian. That has really hasn't happened before, not that I'm aware of. It was the first time that people my age and younger are saying, okay, we've had enough. Now, because of the dawn of the internet, now it's a very easy way to contact people and say, no, you need to shut this down because it's being upheld by some kind of Russian artist. Or no, you need to change the name of this. Or this is Ukrainian, this is Ukrainian. So we are rewriting in a way colonial history and we are doing it in our voices in the truth we are representing ukraine as it should be you know and that's the difference i think you know back then in the 70s 80s even 90s even when ukraine kind of got independence people still referred like or deferred to russia instead of ukraine you know so i think now there's a turning point here and yes, it's taken a lot of unfortunate and un, you know, un, 
unconscionable deaths and people losing their loved ones and artists losing their lives, unfortunately. But now it's kind of completely shifted. Well, absolutely hope that's the case. And I think the work you're doing with the team on the documentary, that is having a huge impact. It will have a further impact with the second anniversary coming up. And this is perfect timing to really get people uh, um, you know, into that. Anyone watching this, I strongly encourage you, please do share the links. Find out where this documentary is available in your region. I was able to to download it uh, at a pay, but I was able to download it on, on Amazon um, in preparation and watch it. As I say, it took five sittings to watch, but I think incredibly important to, to, to do that. Um, and I'm sure people will find a way to, to watch it in their areas. PBS uh, is the other website. We'll put all the links in the description here, but I think it's incredibly important what you're doing. I'm so appreciative of, of, of all that work and, and all of your colleagues as well. Um, and of course we need to do everything we can to, shorten victory to bring it sooner and make it more decisive so that uh, more of these talented Ukrainian voices uh, aren't silenced. Absolutely. I highly, I agree. And I'm, I'm thank you always for allowing um, Ukrainian voices to share truth and to have a platform where you're open, open to having hard discussions because I think, again, it's so easy to just turn away and shut people down. And I think the more we start listening to each other and learning from each other's perspectives, that hopefully will get Ukraine closer to victory um, and sooner. So here's hoping that this year, everything will shift finally, so. Well, thank you. Slava Ukraini. Heroim Slava, Yakuy.